Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the new podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Chatterley on Bloomberg Television called What You Missed. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we spoke with Adam Enbar, Flatiron School co-founder, about the latest talent war in crypto hiring. He said the blockchain space is like the wild, wild west. Take a listen. So the blockchain space is unbelievably interesting. Uh, it's really kind of like still a wild, wild west. Yeah. Um, almost like the internet was 20 years ago. Uh, so a lot of people don't know what to make of it, but um, companies are starting to catch on and they're hiring like crazy. And because it's so new, no one really has experience, right? Not only does nobody have experience, nobody's teaching this stuff. And, and the reason for that is that it's being invented in real time. Uh, and so you can't really go out to a traditional uh, educational institution and get educated about it. But companies ranging from you know, big banks like Goldman and to, to IBM to blockchain-specific companies are dying for talent. So if no one really has uh, experience in the space, what are the kinds of experience that might be relevant and the types of backgrounds from which someone could perhaps easily quickly train into it? Well, really any background. So blockchain is a pretty sophisticated technology. All you really need to know to get started is software engineering, yeah. which uh, I, you know, most people think you need to be born in the matrix to learn how to code, but the reality is you can learn it pretty quick. I run a three-month uh, program that gets uh, people jobs as software engineers. We have a 97% job placement rate for uh, people who are job seeking coming out of our program. And um, yeah, you don't really need any background. You just need a will to learn. So we see students coming from all kinds of backgrounds, ranging from financial services to art and music to the military. Um, Obviously, a lot of people with financial backgrounds coming in, learning how to code, have a big advantage going into the job market uh, as blockchain developers. Have you seen any cool off in interest in this space this year, now that at least on the pure crypto side, some of the errors come out of the bubble a little bit? Oh, not even a little bit. I mean, it's accelerating at a crazy space. So, you know, uh, think about it like this way. The blockchain is the Internet and crypto is one website. Bitcoin is one website. So, you know, Bitcoin will continue to go up and down as they figure out how to put regulations and applications around it to make it more usable. But the blockchain itself is uh, it's essentially a revolution. I'm curious about the uh, whether there is a difference in this sort of ethos of blockchain development versus traditional sort of uh, move fast and break things. You don't want to move fast and break things when people have potentially millions, billions of dollars in sort of virtual assets at stake. Right. Does that change? Is that a mindset shift that people have to undergo when they're thinking about this space? 
Actually, no, that's really what the power of the blockchain is. So, you know, if you're running one central website that processes credit card transactions, you have a lot of risk there. The whole power of the blockchain is the entire thing is decentralized. Nobody has the power to mess anything up. Um, so, but like so we see, for example, um, you know, various Ethereum projects have gotten hacked or assets have gotten frozen, so- causing hundreds of millions of dollars in losses. An equivalent tech error, say, if you're building some sort of mobile app, might be nothing. You just reverse it or, you know, the next version. Uh, in the blockchain space, there might be huge battles over whether sure. it's a fork, fork or not. In the individual projects might have problems the same way individual websites might crash or, uh, you know, Amazon might have... Have issues processing payments that one day could cost billions of dollars. Um, uh, so it's kind of a bumpy road on yeah. the way up, but that's the way it is with any new technology. And, and I think that's a sign of how quickly it's going. It's such an immature technology. It's like getting in on the internet on day one. And the fact that it's moving so quickly, there's so much money and so much investment behind it, just shows you how serious this is. Basically, every day, or probably more than once a day, you hear about some legacy company trying to figure out what they're going to do in this space. Yeah. You know, now so have some press release about to sure. on the blockchain. What are the areas that you see uh, on this sort of employer side yep. where they're showing you know, very clear projects that they're trying to do? Yeah, so, I mean, there's a ton going on. And it's easy. There are definitely a lot of companies just, you know, trying to use the blockchain because it's cool. might not necessarily make sense. Um, You know, again, it's like the Internet. It's hard to predict where it's going to go. There are some really obvious things, right? So a decentralized technology is really interesting for currency. Uh, An example of an obvious thing that's going on is the idea of putting, for example, title insurance on the blockchain, right? We put uh, 1% of all real estate transactions have to pay for title insurance just to make sure you actually own the property yourself. The blockchain gets rid of that entirely. That is billions and billions of dollars of value that's about to be unlocked. Um, And so, you know, I think ultimately uh, there are these obvious use cases, but just like with the Internet, it's up to the entrepreneurs to figure out how are we going to take this amazing technology and unleash it. And that's why it's such an amazing time to learn it. And the people who are uh, studying this area underneath you guys, like they're getting hired right away. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, uh, this month we had our, uh, by over 40%, we had our highest job placement month ever. Um, so it's, you know, we're, we're perpetually running out of graduates to place at companies. We also spoke with David Shaw, Family Management Corporation CIO, about the housing market. And we talked about how difficult it is to have a recession with this much of a tailwind still for housing. I think the consumer is definitely in great shape. I mean, wages are rising, there's tailwinds, consumers are building up equity in their homes, and even um, you know, across the board, I think a lot of stocks have started to rally. You know, they, they've taken such a big hit over the last year or two that I think it might be a little bit of a sympathy rally. Um, I don't like the term dead cat bounce, but you know, valuations can get to a point where it can make sense where short sellers give up and um, take their gains and, and longs come in a bit. Are you surprised by the ongoing strength that we see in the tech sector at this moment as well? I mean, we've seen the Nasdaq in the last 24 hours making fresh record highs. What do you make of the investment that we're seeing, particularly post-earnings season? And we were kind of concerned about the valuations there, apparently no longer. I think it's remarkable. I think you look at the difference between the S&P value and S&P growth within the S&P 500, and you're looking at 1,000 points of outperformance year-to-date among S&P 500 companies. And I think it's gotten to a point where there's an element of momentum, there's an element of fear of missing out, 
Um, there's a lot of things, but I think it's, it's very remarkable and it's, it's difficult to justify some of these valuations on any way you look at it. Yeah, so you have some value stocks rising like retailers and you have some growth stocks rising like tech names. It, it is unbelievable. One area you mentioned... Uh, uh, homeowners or consumers continuing to build up equity. The homeowner balance sheets looking good. I feel like there's a lot of different moving parts in housing right now because on the one hand, uh, you have home prices continuing to rise. On the other hand, you have home builders, which have had a terrible, uh, pretty awful year among various constraints. What in the uh, sort of housing space, which I know you look at closely, is sort of most interesting to you right now? I just think it's fascinating that you know builders had a big run-up and building products to through, I would say, mid-January, and since then they've really gotten hit hard. And I think there's been a couple things that have probably been a result of that. One is interest rates have gone up, and as a result, mortgage rates have gone up. Now, I think that's very overblown. I think that the price sensitivity to rising mortgages is very overstated. I think that the true impact of that, um, people are not going to stop buying homes because mortgage rates are up a quarter of a point or half of a point. And I think the other thing is commodity inflation. So we've seen lumber go up, we've seen concrete prices go up. So there's, there's inflation in some of the input goods. But I think even considering all those things, I think that that space has been hit way too hard. And I think huh. that you, know, you look at a space like tech, they're building in best case scenario and everything. <laughs> I look at home builders in the housing space And we're at a place when demand is great, Um, we're underbuilding homes, and I think it's as good of a supply picture as we've probably seen in 30-plus years. Why do we overestimate the sensitivity to rising mortgage rates? Is it just a legacy of the past and the crisis that we saw, and we're just nervous of, of the prospects and what ultimately ratcheting up of rates could mean? Right. I mean, when you look at the actual impact of a mortgage payment for a 30 year home at the prevailing you know, median home prices, the actual impact is not that much. And when the consumer is doing well and their wages are going up, I think the impact of that is even further muted. Um, but I think you're right, it's, it's legacy, it's the headline risk of, oh, it's gonna be less affordable. Uh, you mentioned affordability because there's a lot of moving parts to that. And I think uh, we have a chart here showing uh, historical affordability and where we stand. But of course, that's a combination of prices themselves, mortgages, and then just how much money people are making, of course, because things can go up in price, but if you're making money, it can be more sure. affordable. What does the affordable affordability picture look like to you right now? So historically, it's still very good. If you look at the median mortgage payment to, to income, it's still well below the crisis, pre-crisis levels. Now, the thing, the caveat that's important is obviously, um, you know, urban areas like California and New York, the Bay Area. They're outliers. They're outliers. So the, the, the median, you know, is very different than obviously the average. So we can't speak for the whole country when we talk about the, the aggregate numbers. But, but by and large, affordability is still very good. And even if you assume um, mortgage rates go up to 5.5%, Lori Goodman just really did a good piece on this recently, the affordability is still below historical averages. So I think that that this fear of rising mortgage rates has really been overblown when it comes to affordability and the, the building, building stocks in general. What could pop that? What, what could halt this advance for home builders for the housing market overall? I just think it's going to have to be earnings because they're performing very well. They're making a lot of money. You look at next year, a lot of the builders are trading in single-digit multiples. It's not the only way to look at builders, but it's one way to look at it. And I think the overall supply and demand picture 
we're still, the housing starts to still way below um, historical levels. So I think you look at houses that go away that are demolished each year, and population is growing more than the housing supply is growing. So there's, there's more homes that need to be built. With these fundamental tailwinds for housing, can you have a recession? Hmm, good question. I think it's very difficult to have one. Now, every recession is different, but I think in the case of right now, things are very different than they have been in the past. When you look at the last recession, housing led it. This time, um, you know, it stayed tighter a lot longer than, for instance, corporate debt in other areas. So mortgage market has just started to loosen, makes it starting to loosen up. The private mortgage market's opening up a little bit, but it's still lagging, I think, the broader economy and there's many, many years left of a positive housing market. And we spoke with Ed Hyman, Evercore ISI chairman. He joined us to discuss the latest moves in markets and whether investors are starting to get skittish about U.S. assets. I think the main overriding uh, thing is the, is the trade deals. I think the emerging markets are a backdrop but the trade deals are what really has the market uh, moving up and down. Uh, the, I find the bond yield coming down mm-hmm. uh, a real relaxing uh, element of it. What I worry about is that inflation picks up and bond yields really shoot up and Fed starts to tighten aggressively. They're caught off guard. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. They're caught off guard or they just start to react to inflation picking up. So I'm frankly pretty amazed that bond yields are still as quiet as they are. And, but I think it's a generally a positive you know, aspect. So obviously we're aware of a lot of just sort of risks out there. Today we saw Brazil getting slammed, other emerging markets getting slammed. Um, you mentioned the trade stuff. If you were to strip away all of these sort of headlines and events and you just sort of look at the underlying fundamentals of the U.S. economy, of uh, corporate earnings, is there anything that you see that sort of derails the benign picture? No. <laughs> I'm sure something could derail it. Sure. But um, so the economy right now, almost everybody thinks is pretty strong. In our work, it's also accelerating. So I think growth is approaching three and a half percent right now. And then I start to worry about inflation. Uh, but today they had the flow of funds data come out and they had consumer net worth uh, broke above a hundred trillion dollars. It's up uh, something like seven percent. And that corporate cash uh, was almost three trillion and it's up 14 percent. So the system is really awash with liquidity. And after a decade of growth, you have a lot of things breaking for the positive, say like the unemployment rate uh, and the things I just mentioned. Well, um, one of the things that stood out from the report, most recent report that you sent us, is the PMI, um, which uh, increased to 58.6% in May. And it said in the report, it probably can't go much higher, which struck me because it reminded me of what Caterpillar said that got so much attention on its last conference call, that this could be 
sort of a peak. Is that does that concern you at all that we could be? I mean, this is as good as it gets in a lot of aspects. Uh, I don't think so. I think that growth will slow next year from say three and a half to two and a half. For the past decade, growth has been two, and that got things better and better and better over a long period of time. The difference between Caterpillar and the PMI is the PMI is range-bound. Say it goes between 40 and 60. It can't go to 180. Whereas for Caterpillar, they hope it just keeps going up and up and up. Uh, So I think there's a fair chance that the PMI has peaked. But at this level, you know, 59, say, is at a very strong level. Some of these surveys obviously are quite strong. Uh, another one similar to the PMI, the, uh, the non-manufacturing ISM report came out earlier right. this week. And while the headline was very strong, when you looked at some of the anecdotal stuff, companies complaining about bottlenecks, companies complaining about shortages. We know there's labor tightness. We know that uh, there's housing shortages. Do you worry about you know this sort of essentially... I guess what people would call overheating and that there are parts of the economy that are sort of buckling under uh, the pressure right now. So I worry a lot about that. I I don't quite see it as buckling under the pressure, uh, but they're having a hard time finding all sorts of workers. Uh, And I worry that inflation picks up at some point uh, in a real sharp fashion. uh, But so far that hasn't because there are a lot of factors on the other side, say technology, for example, intense competition and globalization that so far have kept inflation in check, even though you have amazing uh, tightness in labor markets. You said you worried about inflation, um, yet in your reports you highlight average hourly earnings and how it actually is different this time. If you look at right. the, the move in average hourly earnings, it hasn't accelerated as it has in past cycles. Yeah. What do you think is, is behind that? What's driving that? Yeah. There have been so many theories and there have been so many false starts. Yeah. So... I mainly, I mainly observe it, and I'm ready to change if it starts to change. Mm-hmm. Today, there were three uh, price announcements. Coca-Cola said they might raise prices. Starbucks, you might have seen, and some of the airlines raised fares. Mm-hmm. But on wages, I keep hearing about wages going up, but it doesn't show up in the data month after month after month. And I think technology is, again, one thing that's driving, that's holding it back. Intense competition, where the companies have intense competition, they're reluctant to give pay increases. And then globalization, where you can get labor, you know, from Asia or whatever. Uh, but uh, I, I'm surprised, uh, but I'm patient. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll wait and see when it really starts to pick up. Uh, when it starts to pick up, keep in mind that people who get pay increases feel good about it. You know, the, there's a whole other aspect that... It'll be a cost for companies, and the Fed will react to it. Uh, but for anybody that gets a pay increase, uh, it's a good thing. And that consumption should kick in as well. And that will help consumer spending, help consumer confidence. Ed also discussed an Evercore call from one of his analysts that the retail apocalypse is over. I think it's a very good case in that direction. So we got the stronger employment report. Uh, and uh, got wages are accelerating a little bit. And so the backdrop for consumer is strong. We just got the uh, Bloomberg Consumer Comfort Index, uh, which was down a little bit, but still basically in 17-year high territory. And I travel around the U.S. constantly, and every place I go to is doing really well. You know, from Miami to Seattle, the whole West Coast, uh, Philadelphia, 
Boston is booming. So I think the backdrop is, is pretty good for consumer spending. Uh, on the other hand, the co- even if you were optimistic about consumer spending, there has been a story up until very recently that the old brick-and-mortar companies are, uh, are just dead. Of course, many of them have had very good years, much to the surprise of many people. What is it that everyone missed in that story? Because some of the best gainers of the year, are just the, is it just that they were so low that they had to bounce a little bit? Or is there something more fundamental there that says, no, there's some real durable uh, strength there? So I think it's a case of a rising tide will lift all boats if it rises enough. So again, this has been going on for a decade. Uh, and eventually it got you know, good enough uh, that it lifts some of the, the brick-and-mortar guys. Right. Uh, and again, when I travel around the U.S., uh, places all over, the, all over the country are doing better you wouldn't think of. There was a story about uh, Columbus, Nebraska, that has a housing shortage. And Elkhart, Elkhart Indiana, mm. is the uh, RV capital of the country. I uh, knew that. <laughs> well, you were ahead of me, but I found it out. Uh, so there are a lot of places, uh, e- even smaller places, and there's an index called the, uh, the Middle America Index. It's like a PMI. Huh. It came out, it, it shot up, and it's for Nebraska and South Dakota, North Dakota, Oklahoma, et cetera, and it moved up to a, it shot up a lot to a 14-year high. What you do at ISI, Evercore ISI, that's so valuable is that you do a lot of these on-the-ground surveys that really give us a sense of what's happening in different parts of the country that a lot of the national indexes don't capture. Uh, and, and this idea that there's a lot of confidence and things are going really well comes through in that. A lot of that doesn't get reflected in economists' forecasts as well. What do you think economists or the forecasts right now are getting wrong? They're not taking into account. I find that people now, when I have meetings... Uh, when I talk about the economy being strong, people go like, yeah, 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 I get it. Hmm. So I think there's been uh, a, a feeling uh, that it is doing better uh, that's now accepted as such. In the first quarter, GDP, to stick with that part, was up 2.9 year to year, so almost 3%. And the second quarter, it's on track to be up 3.1 or 2 And I think that will change the, per- the perception or the, or the discussion about the economy if you have four quarters that have averaged 3%, that, gee, maybe it is getting better. So people catch up with the numbers. They're not there yet, though. Uh, they're, they're getting there. Actually, I don't find anybody... The, the, the main argument at the moment is that this is as good as it gets, that you know, growth will, will peak or slow. Uh, I don't know whether they think it's going to be precipitous or not. It'll kind of roll over or something. It'll roll over. Yeah. And, uh, again, my, I sort of hope it slows down because if it keeps growing at, you know, 3 or 3.5% or 4%, we will overheat, and we'll overheat heat sooner. Uh, so the, the 2% growth we had, you know, in 19, 11, uh, I wouldn't mind going back to that, uh, but the stock market might have a, an adjustment uh, if, you know, if we were to transition into that. So a plateau would be welcome because it would signal that the gains would be more sustainable. Right. This has been another episode of What You Miss This Week. And don't forget to watch What You Miss from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television Monday through Friday and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.